Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. This morning, I want to start by telling you a story about uh, one of the most remarkable Christians of the 20th century, a Dutch woman named Corey Tinboom. Uh, many of you have probably heard of her. Uh, she is well known because she, along with her family, uh, they were living in, in Holland during World War II, and they decided to start um, hiding Jews from the Nazis during the Nazi occupation of uh, the Netherlands. And so uh, they, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. It tells her whole story. But um, long story short, she and her father or her family were discovered. Uh, they were in for- an informant. Uh, uh, turned them into the Nazis, and she and her father and her sister, Betsy, were arrested and sent to Ravensbrook, Ravensbrook concentration camp. And when they went there, like, it, it was, it was uh, just obviously everything you can imagine. While she was there, both her father and her sister died, and, um, but Corey survived, and after the war was over, she created a rehab center for uh, survivors of concentration camps. And she also went on uh, uh, ministry tours in which she was a, she was a well-known speaker, and so she uh, was invited to speak all over the world. And in 1947, she took a ministry tour of Germany, which was a big step in and of itself. But uh, when she arrived in the city of Munich one evening, uh, she experienced the most extreme test I think any of us could imagine. And she tells the story this way, that, that or, well, uh, that as she arrived there, uh, uh, sorry, after the service was over, she finished speaking, and everybody got up to speak, or everybody got up to leave. Hello. <laughs> I can talk this morning. Um, but as everybody was leaving, she noticed somebody, that this heavy, heavy way, uh, kind of uh, heavy set, balding man in a gray overcoat, making his way kind of against the flow of traffic towards her. And as she looked out at him, she, she realized that he looked familiar for, for some reason. And she kept looking at him. All of a sudden, she remembered who he was. This was one of the guards from the Ravensbrook concentration camp. And, and in a moment, she no longer was seeing this man in his gray overcoat. She was seeing this man in his blue uniform with uh, the visored cap and the skull and crossbones on it and, and, and the leather crop hanging from his belt. And, and she remembered standing in this this kind of big warehouse room with, with a pile, a pathetic pile of clothes on one side and shoes on another and being forced to parade past this man and other guards completely naked. And, and the, the, she was remembering the humiliation and the shame and, the, and that this man was, was partially responsible for her sister's death. And, and as she's remembering all these things, he arrives in front of her and sticks out his hand. She tells the story this way in her book, The Hiding Place. He says, a fine message, Foyline. How good it is to know that, as you say, our God forgives our sins and casts them to the bottom of the sea. And I, she's reflecting herself here, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. 
I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I, I, I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me of the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. My sister Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. What would you do in that situation? If you're face to face with one of your torturers, would you, would you spit in his face? Would you hit him? Would you, would you shout at him and expose him for the monster that he is and, and tell him all the things that he had stolen from you? Would you just coldly say, no, please leave? Or would you forgive? You see, the test that Corey Timboon faced, I mean, it was, it was an extreme test. But that test is a test that every single one of us will face. I mean, her story is like the stuff out of Hollywood. It's got a lot of drama to it. But every single one of us face the test of whether or not we're going to choose to forgive those who have hurt us, those who have taken things from us, those who have betrayed us in one way or another. All of us throughout the course of our life are going to have to make the choice to forgive. And I know for many of you here, as I just even start to bring up this topic, you have names that are coming to mind, horrific stories that if we brought you up here on stage and you shared your story, we'd all agree that, no, that person does not for deserve forgiveness. And when that person's name comes to mind, rather than feeling forgiving, you feel hurt, you feel pain, you feel anger, you feel a coldness in your heart, and forgiveness seems like an impossibility. Well, today as we continue in our series on learning to love, we're going to look at one of the most essential aspects, I think, of learning to love well, and that's forgiving those who have hurt you. Because, let's be honest, I mean, it is impossible to be in any sort of substantial relationship without the necessity of forgiveness, right? I mean, you've got to learn how to forgive others, and they're going to have to be able to extend forgiveness to you. It's impossible to have any real relationship with somebody without forgiveness. To love well, you've got to be able to forgive well. In fact, I, I think this is so important that we're going to spend the next couple weeks on this topic because I, I think there's a lot to say here, and I don't want to rush through it. So today, we're going to talk about why we forgive. And next week, we're going to talk about how we forgive and look at some of the, 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 the process that we can use to actually be able to sincerely forgive those who have hurt us. But today, as I said, I want to look at the question of why we forgive. I mean, if we're going to forgive somebody, we need to understand why. We need to understand the motive of forgiveness. 
Because let's be honest, nobody really wants to forgive, right? You know, C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something or someone to forgive. <laughs> the, the, the gravitational pull for all of us when we're hurt, when we're betrayed, when we're, we are wounded by someone is to want to have justice. We want to have vengeance. We want to get back at the person who's hurt us. We want them to suffer just as much as they have made us suffer. And we use unforgiveness as a weapon to do that. We, we think if we can withhold our grace and our love towards somebody, then that'll make, that'll show them, that'll make them pay. It's a strategy that we unconsciously use over and over again. And yet, when you read through the New Testament, God over and over again says, you've got to forgive those who have hurt you. Why? Why would he tell us to do this? Why would he tell us to forgive the person who's abused you? Why would he tell you to forgive the spouse who's abandoned you? Why would he tell you to forgive that friend who betrayed you? Where's the justice in that? Is God just trying to make our lives difficult? You know, I mean, because those people, they deserve, just, they, they deserve punishment, right? I mean, they deserve, they deserve pain in response for what they've done to us. And yet God commands us to forgive. And over and over again throughout the New Testament, we're told to forgive those who have sinned against us. You know, for example, I, I put this passage up a few weeks ago, but it comes from Colossians. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, he says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over and over again, you find the idea of forgiveness tied with the fact that we are forgiven. If you read through the New Testament, almost every time it's connected, uh, our forgiveness of others is connected with God's forgiveness of us. So you could say it this way, the reason why we forgive is because we are forgiven. <laughs> the reason we forgive is because we are forgiven. Now, it actually has nothing to do with how deserving or undeserving the person who offended you is. It has nothing to do with how gracious or loving or magnanimous you might be. The reason that we are told to forgive is because God has forgiven us. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I love that quote because so often when I struggle with forgiveness, it's like, I think it's because I assume that that person should know better. And this is why, you know, that passage we looked at from Paul, he's writing to the church. He's saying, hey, we got to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's, I think for many of us, the most painful things we've experienced have come at the hands of other Christians who should know better. And it's inexcusable that they have done what they've done. And, we, and, and for that reason, we hold on to resentment and we hold on to unforgiveness. But what C.S. Lewis is saying, hey, yeah, what they did is inexcusable, but God has forgiven the inexcusable in you as well. And when we grasp the reality of what God has done for us, the, the, the wonder of forgiveness, that God has cleansed us of our sin, that He's given us, He's made us pure and holy in our sight, that He's delivered us from shame and recrimination, He's delivered us from the chains of, the, of darkness. When we grab a hold of the wonder of that, then it makes it so much easier to forgive those who have wounded us. I say easier. 
But I think we all know it's never easy. And I think Jesus knew that as well. And so in Matthew 18, we're told about a parable that he shares uh, along these lines. And I think it gives us God's perspective on forgiveness and why it's so important. And it it starts out in kind of a humorous way because uh, in Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and, and asks him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And, and to get the significance of the statement, you have to understand that, that the rabbis at that time taught that, that you had to forgive someone up to three times. After that, apparently, you were totally free to treat them with as much bitterness and vindictiveness and vengeance as you wanted, but you had to at least forgive somebody three times before you really lashed out at them. And so Peter is like really going above and beyond here. He's doubling it and then adding one for good measure. And I think, I mean, you can read this in a lot of different ways, but I don't think this was a real question from Peter. I think this was a teacher's pet question. I think he was wanting some affirmation from Jesus. I think he wanted a gold star. He wanted Jesus to be like, oh, Peter, you're so magnanimous. You're you're really getting it. You're my favorite disciple. Well done. Well done. I mean, I don't know why Jesus is an old British guy, but there you go. Uh, You know, uh, anyway, but uh, I think that's what Peter was hoping for here. And I think he was completely unprepared for how Jesus responded to him. says this. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And I could see, you know, you can just see Peter like this. 77. We've gone from three to 77. Now, we, we, we've all read this story. So many of us, you know, we've been in church for a long time. You've heard this before. And so, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not, it doesn't like have the emotional resonance. But for his first time hearers, Their jaws would have been on the floor. They would have been astonished at what Jesus was saying here because he had far exceeded what all the godly rabbis were saying. And now he's saying, you got to go above and beyond uh, what you ever thought was possible. (laughs) And for for those who are are literalists, you might think, well, okay, once I get to 77, then I can just, you know, uh, treat somebody with as much uh, vindictiveness as possible. But Jesus is, this is just hyperbole here. And Jesus is saying, hey, you got to throw away the scorecard and live a lifestyle of forgiveness. That your automatic posture becomes one of forgiveness towards those who have wounded you. And to explain how we do that or why we do that, he tells them this story, this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold. So since we don't necessarily deal with gold, uh, bags of gold in our culture, uh, let me kind of translate that to modern terms. 10,000 bags of gold, uh, well, let's say it this way. One bag of gold would be worth uh, a, a 20 years of work or 20 years wages for a common laborer. So if you just do the math, 10,000 bags would equal 200,000 years of work from the common laborer. That's roughly equivalent to 4.6 billion pounds. Imagine being told you're on the hook for 4.6 billion pounds today. You know, <laughs> I think most of us understand that's, that's an impossibility for us. 
And the implication here is that this guy was either a criminal, he was embezzling or stealing from his master, or he was just extremely irresponsible with his master's funds. But he's facing a, a, a serious situation here. And it says this, it says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So this is a desperate moment for this servant. He's about to lose everything. He's about to lose his wife. He's about to lose his family. He's about to spend the rest of his life in jail, in, in, in a hard labor. I mean, he's, he's about to lose it all. And in that moment of desperation, he just, he just pleads for mercy. He says this. He goes, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him, and he said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back for everything. Be patient with me. Now, let's be honest. I'm sure the servant knew, and I'm sure the master knew, that it was a practical impossibility for him to ever repay the master for all, uh, repay this huge sum to his master. So the master has a decision to make. He can either punish him and take everything from him and try to recoup some small portion of his losses by sending him off to a labor camp, or he could show him mercy. And that's what he did. It says the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What a powerful demonstration of grace. Now, can you imagine the relief that the servant felt? I mean, just the, the rejoicing in that moment, the, the, the shock and amazement of, oh my gosh, he's let me off the hook. And, and suddenly, everything was going to lose everything one minute, and then the next minute, it's all been given back to him. Not only does he not have to go to prison, he doesn't have to pay anything back. I mean, can you imagine the rejoicing? I imagine he was astonished. I imagine he hugged the master. I imagine he fell at his feet and kissed him and, and thanked him, and then he went out and rejoiced with his wife and his kids and I imagine everyone heard about this and celebrated the extraordinary generosity of the master. Well, the story doesn't end there. Jesus goes on to tell us what the servant does. So when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him with the same words that he had just said. Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Be patient with me. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called a servant in. You wicked servant, I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So this servant, he, you know, he goes out, he, he's shown mercy, and then he turns around, he goes out, and he finds somebody that owes him about a day's wages. It says 100, silvers coin, 100 silver coins, that's about 15 pounds. So about a day's wages for the common labor, and he demands it back. And, and we're meant to identify with this unmerciful servant. <laughs> this is a picture of our predicament 
with sin, right? That we can never pay God back what we owe for our sin. No amount of good deeds or acts of penance is ever going to be enough to earn our forgiveness with God. It's only God's amazing grace that allows us to be forgiven. And it seems that the obligation then, and what Jesus' point in the story is that for those who have been forgiven, our, our obligation is to extend that same forgiveness to others. That those of us who have experienced forgiveness, that God's forgiveness need to turn and extend God's forgiveness to others. And it has nothing to do with whether or not the person deserves it or not. It has nothing to do with how repentant they are, how sorry they are, how much they tr- they're going to try to make it up to you. I mean, after all, can they really repay you for what they've done? We forgive because God's forgiven us. And he asks us to pass that forgiveness on. And it's in forgiving others that we actually show that we understand the depth of what God has done to us. It's, it's when we, we actually turn and forgive someone else that, that we're showing how much we understand and appreciate what God has shown us, the mercy he's shown us. You see, forgiving others is an, is an act of worship. You know, we forgive out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Remember the woman who, who came and, and broke the expensive perfume, poured it out over Jesus as he's reclining at the table, and everybody's kind of shocked, and, and this is sort of a scandalous situation. And Jesus says, he who forgives much loves much. See, this woman understood how much she'd been forgiven, and so she's pouring out her worship on Jesus. And, you know, often I, you can tell how much somebody understands what God has done in their life by the way they worship. They're so, they're so glad that they're free, that their shame has been wiped away, that they're now whiter than snow, that God has separated their sins as far as the east is from the west. And so now they just rejoice. They don't really care who sees them or how ridiculous they might look. They're rejoicing over their forgiveness. When's the last time you rejoiced over your forgiveness? When's the last time you, you just your heart was filled with gratitude that your sins have been washed away and you are now pure and holy in God's sight. I think a lot of us, we just take it for granted. That's why I love seeing new believers because they, this is whole all new thing for them and, and they're just filled with wonder at God's forgiveness. But if you've been a believer for a long time, I want to challenge you this morning to start thanking God, renew that wonder at what He has done for you. Let's not take His forgiveness for granted. Also, when we extend forgiveness to other people, it's, that is the way that some people experience God's forgiveness, is through us. You know, we say often here that we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting and broken world. And one of the ways that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus is by extending them the same forgiveness that he has extended us. It's this, I think this is what was behind that guard at the, from Ravensbrück concentration camp coming up to Corey Timboom and saying, hey, hey, I, I, I believe God's forgiven me, but would you forgive me as well? And she had the opportunity to either express that forgiveness to him or to refuse it. I want to go back, though, to how 
Jesus ends that story because I think it's really important that we understand what he's saying. He says this really kind of harsh statement. He says, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And that word tortured there, it's not an accident. The the literal translation says he should be handed over to the torturers. And that sounds harsh, doesn't it? You know, who, who are these torturers? What is Jesus alluding to here? Well, I think there's different levels to this. I actually think that he could be saying that this is, this is referring to like demonic, uh, demonic entities, that, that if you persist in unforgiveness towards people, it opens the door to the enemy to get a stronghold in your life. And that's why one of the first things people need to do a lot of times if they want to get free, whether it's from the pain of the past or maybe some other thing that they're dealing with, is they've got to start by forgiving because that is usually somewhere near the foundation of the problem. It's kind of the root of the problem. And if you can deal with that unforgiveness, the enemy loses power in your life. But I also think that this is an analogy, an illustration of the effect of unforgiveness on the soul. You see, I think unforgiveness becomes a prison and a place of torment to anyone who chooses to live with unforgiveness in their heart. Like I said, we we tend to think of unforgiveness as a way of getting back at somebody. We think they've got to earn our forgiveness. They've got to prove to us that they're really sorry. It's our weapon that we use to, to, to sort of get back at people. But it doesn't work that way. Uh, the writer Anne Lamott, she says this. She says that unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and hoping that the rat will die. <laughs> I love that line. See, we think that unforgiveness is actually hurting somebody else, but it's really just hurting us. And if you've ever carried around unforgiveness in your heart for any extended period of time, you know that torment is a good word for what unforgiveness is. It's, it, it's miserable. It's, it, it's not only miserable for you, but it, it trickles out and it affects the people around you. It'll contaminate everything else in your life because what unforgiveness does is when you don't forgive somebody, it's like you shut down a part of your heart and therefore you can't love as well. You can't, there's just less of you to give. Your, Your heart just shrivels up until it's just a shell of itself. Plus, when you allow bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment to linger, what it does is it just keeps that wound alive in you. You guys ever had those situations where somebody's done something to you and you just keep replaying it and you keep replaying it and you keep replaying it and every time you're looking for maybe a, a way to you know, protect yourself or come back with a really good cutting remark or you know, some way that you can somehow change the outcome but you know you can't and it just kind of keeps cycling through. I'm sure we've all had that at times. I certainly have. But that's what happens with unforgiveness. It, it just keeps you reliving. It keeps you connected to this thing that is wounding you. And that's why I, can't, I couldn't find who said this, but I love this quote. It says, unforgiveness is like allowing the person who hurts you to live in your head rent-free. <laughs> so when somebody has done something to you and you just keep meditating on it, it's like they're just kind of continuing to hurt you over and over and over again. But when we forgive, it sets us free. Uh, the author, Lewis Smedes, he says this. He says, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free and finding out the prisoner is you. <laughs> Unforgiveness is keeping us in a prison. And when we choose to forgive, we find that the person we're not setting free is them. The person we're setting free is us. 
And when we forgive, it brings healing to our souls and allows us to not be held captive by that person anymore, or that event anymore. So let me, let me say that again. I don't want you to miss this. Forgiveness brings healing. That's what we're after. When somebody's really wounded us, what we need more than anything is healing. We need, to be, we need the, the, the pain to go away, and that's what we're after. And, and when you forgive, what it does is it unleashes the grace and mercy of God in your heart, and He will heal. So if you're wanting some sort of uh, uh, freedom from the thing that's happened to you that you were an innocent victim of, that, you had, that, that was completely unjustified, whatever it was that was done for you, start by forgiving so that God can, the grace of God can come wash over you, heal you, and restore your soul. You see, God isn't telling us to forgive because he's, he's trying to make our lives more difficult or because he's unjust. See, God, tells us to, God telling us to forgive is a rescue for us. He doesn't want you in prison. He doesn't want you kept by, he doesn't want you tortured by your unforgiveness. He doesn't want you tethered to that brokenness in your past and that, that pain that has been done to you. He wants you free. And so he's commanding you to forgive even though he knows it's hard. It's good. God tells us to forgive for our good. One last thing I want to say before we end is that forgiveness is both a supernatural, it is both supernatural and an act of the will. You see, we, we can't forgive abusive people or events without God supernaturally enabling us to do it. Like, willpower alone will not get you there. And I think that's a misconception that a lot of us have. We just got to gut it out and, and just somehow in our own strength be able to forgive somebody. But if you think about it, God's forgiveness is a, of us is a supernatural event, right? I mean, the fact that, that we can be cleansed of our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross, that in itself is supernatural. And so then we're to forgive as God forgave us. So that is a supernatural thing as well that we turn and extend to others. But it's not something that we can just be passive about either. You know, if we, if we, <clears throat> just, if we choose not, if we're, if we're not intentional with this, we'll dink around with it, we'll put it off, we'll delay, we'll make excuses and nothing is really going to happen. You see, God is asking us to just simply say yes. There, there has to be this point in you that says, God, I, I want this to happen. I'm willing. Or, or sometimes maybe it's, God, I want to want to forgive. I don't, in my own heart, I don't really feel like it right now. I don't want to forgive this person, but I at least want the desire to forgive them. I'm open. So would you help me forgive? I need your supernatural help. See, God, part, there's a partnership between our will, the yes in our spirit, and the supernatural empowering of God. Without, if we just had the yes alone, without God, I don't think we'd get there. But the two work together. I think what God is asking each one of us to do is to open the door of our hearts to forgiveness and then trust Him for the grace to walk through it. And this is the lesson that Corey Timboom had to learn on that cold winter day in Munich in 1947. You know, her former captor is standing there before her with his hand outstretched, and he's asking for forgiveness. And, and, and the moment she sees him, you know, she's got the trauma response. We know psychologically that's what's happening. Can you imagine the trauma of that moment? Here's this man who's inflicted so much horror into your life, and there he is again. And no matter how nice he might be being in the moment, you're 
your heart, your mind is going back to what you've experienced at this per- with this person. She hadn't really been healed from that yet. And there he is with his hands outstretched. And here's how she describes what happens. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. that The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, God. You must supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Cory made the choice to open the door to forgiveness. Can you do the same? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you know the stories of everyone listening today? You know the hurt, the neglect, the abuse, the betrayals that have been suffered in this room and for people watching online. And God, I know that when our hearts were broken, that your heart broke as well. But Lord, we ask today that you would give me and all those listening to my words today the courage to say yes, to open the door to forgiveness. Lord, help us to leave our desire for vengeance and justice with you and help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Help us to forgive the inexcusable as you have forgiven the excusable, inexcusable in us. Lord, help us to grant those who don't deserve our mercy the mercy that we didn't deserve ourselves. And grant us your supernatural strength to walk through the door of forgiveness. Lord, help us. We can't do this apart from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.